Hello, I'm Josephine Burton, and welcome to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Today we set off on a journey into the musical world of Django Reinhardt. I've always loved his music, I've danced to it at parties, and I've known snippets of his personal story. A French jazz guitarist from the Roma community, who barely survived a fire in a caravan which left him unable to play with the fingers of his left hand, who toured the United States with Duke Ellington and was the pioneer of gypsy jazz. I've set out in this podcast to learn more about him, his music and his legacy as part of Dash Arts's European series. I picked up the phone to Michael Dregney, the author of a fabulous biography, Django, The Life and Music of a Gypsy Legend, to help me. Are you able to articulate what you found so enticing and exciting about him as an artist? As an artist? Um, you know, I think I first, I first heard mention of him from B.B. King, uh, the, the bluesman, talking about one of the, you know, the, the great, great influences in his life was hearing recordings of Django that um, other uh, army people had brought back to Mississippi or Memphis where he was. And, and that, I think, inspired me. You know, here's a blues player talking about a gypsy playing jazz in Paris. And I think that kind of, you know, it's just like, you just wanted to hear what he was hearing. And I think when, it, when I first heard those recordings, it, it's just like, there's something sort of so simple in, in how these recordings, how the songs were arranged, how he's playing. There's something simple yet really elegant. Um, the music's kind of uncomplicated, yet it's really dazzling. And it's very lively and spirited, yet it's still very graceful and kind of, you know, makes it classic um, and timeless. And I think, you know, it was, it was just kind of a, a listening to these recordings. It was a, a sort of a time machine back to this whole other era uh, of this just incredible music with, you know, a, a style unlike anyone, what anyone else was playing. Django Reinhardt's timeless music has captured so many people's hearts. In fact, wonderfully, as my research developed and I spoke to musicians across the world, we created our own recording for the podcast, a version of the American 1917 jazz classic Rose Room, which Django recorded of Stéphane Grappelli in the Quintet de Hot Club de France in 1937. Supported by rhythm guitarist Dave Kelby and violinist Joe Townsend, our recording was passed between New Orleans, Paris... Belgium, Italy, via Colombia and the UK. We'll play short excerpts from Rose Room through this podcast and then play out the full piece at the end. Rose Rim, like so much of Django's music, has such a strong guitar-based jazz sound, which has today become known as Gypsy Jazz. I asked Garth Cartwright, author of Princes Among Men, Travels with Gypsy Musicians, to help me understand the relationship between Django and the musical world of Gypsy Jazz. So Django Reinhardt was a jazz musician. He performed with jazz musicians of all ethnicities and different um, you know, nationalities. 
he toured with Duke Ellington. He he was jazz was his thing. What's happened since his death is this kind of genre has grown up, gypsy jazz, which really finds a lot of the musicians only interested in playing in that very specific style. So it's become this kind of niche offshoot of jazz in that sense. And obviously you've got this really strong Roma contingent throughout France, Belgium, you know, Holland, as well as all these people like Dave Kelby, who aren't Roma and they're playing it. And yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's just that it's it's become, yeah, this this little area of guitar jazz that doesn't really aim to, most jazz musicians want to play with other jazz musicians and and see where the music can go. Well, gypsy jazz really exists in a kind of like island in that sense of gypsy jazz. Django was himself Roma. He was born into a Manouche family in Belgium in 1910. I wanted to understand more about the Roma experience, so I picked up the phone to Roma activist Mania Malik to understand more about how life would have been for Roma at that time. I heard about him, yes, but I don't know much. I haven't sort of listened. I heard about That's him. okay. I, I mean, in a in a it, just a little story. Like he was born in 1910 in Belgium in a as part of a Manouche family, and they um, and he travelled across Europe as a child. He was born into this this artistic family. Every, you know, everyone played the music. Everyone, you know, his mother was an actress, um, and they. Um, they travelled during the First World War. They spent time in Italy, but then they ended up uh, tr- spending time in North Africa during, you know, with the Roma communities in North Africa. So they really travelled everywhere and a lot of time in France. They spent a lot of time in the camps outside Paris. That, like, not outside on the edges of Paris, there was a very large encampment for Roma and other outsiders. Which is where Django spent time when he was from about ten, I think. Probably they were in, they were there, and from about the ages of maybe before that, he started to play the guitar, and he picked it up by sight, and he played the guitar extraordinarily well. And he um, lived through uh, playing the, um, the 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 Musette music in Paris, which is the it was before it was the bagpipes, and then it became the accordion. It was this beautiful music in Paris that he grew up with. And he he slowly made it his own, you know, he brought in the music from his community and he made it very unique and beautiful. And he was this extraordinary guitarist. Um, And then um, I had this very tragic moment when he was 19. He just got married. He was living in this um, caravan and it burst on fire. Um, because they were making little, I don't know, piddle paper things for a funeral and candle got caught. And anyway, it was a terrible tragedy. He was fine, his wife was fine, he survived eventually, but his, he lost the ability to play in two fingers in his left hand, I think, or three fingers, so he played with two. Uh, and, and this kind of fed his mystique, you know. He was this extraordinary guitarist who created, who despite this was able to play with what people called a claw. Uh, and then he was very influenced by jazz music, uh, where the jazz came in from the African-American communities but in Paris in the 30s, and he learned from them. And he, he slowly evolved this thing that became gypsy jazz, which was part musette, part Roma, Roma history music, part jazz. Uh, and then it was like it kind of vacuumed, it sponged from everything, and it grew. And during the... Um, the Second World War in Paris, it was really at the height of his fame. He was recording all the time. There was this lots of musicians. 
Um, and he carried on and he went, you know, Duke Ellington, the jazz musician in, in, in America, invited him to be part of a tour around America. You know, he really, he, he was very highly celebrated, very highly celebrated. And he died in 19, in the 50s. You know, he wasn't quite young still, you know, I, I mean, late, still in his 40s, I think, when he died, maybe early 50s, 40s, 40s. Um, but his mystique lives on. And, uh, you know, people still love the music, people still play, and people, very much Django Reinhardt has become the figure for this music. And I'm extremely interested in, in, you know, what an amazing musician he was, and this music that has left this legacy for, 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 for kind of European jazz music. And I'm really interested particularly in the fact that, uh, trying to understand how much his Roma identity was part of uh, himself part of his part of his part of what made him as an artist but part of his legacy today you know how much of it is was a prejudice against him how much of him prevented him and it's and at the same time how much enabled him to be the artist he was and I think it's like my understanding of learning it is that it's both a privilege and a complete burden to to to, to carry this Roma uh, kind of Roma identity, and that really is encapsulated in Django Reinhardt. And I'm just just really it's interested in hearing more. I wrote a poem <laughs> last night about it, and I used the word burden. It is a burden to some extent. Did you yes, really? it is. Growing up, it is. Uh, it's amazing being a Roma. I will, I will never change it for anything, but at times it's a huge burden on you. Definitely. Absolutely. Doesn't matter how successful you are, you will always have it on your shoulders. You will always, you, you, you will not know when you can feel free to be open about it and when to hide it. You always, um, you're an actor, you act 16 hours a day, basically. Being a Roma, you're the best actor ever because you have to act being someone else. It's only when you sleep that you don't act. Otherwise, our life is an act, but never ourselves. When you have a skill, like obviously he had an amazing skill, you, you will always not know how far you're allowed to go for being who you are as a Roma. Because there must have been time in his life that he could have been more open about who he is. I'm sure in the beginning he never said, I am Romani, but I'm French or something else. And that has kept kept him from being better. Absolutely. I'm curious about how much this identity informed his work. I spoke to Alessandra Davison, a Roma actor and director based in the UK for her perspective. The reason why he developed this this sort of hybrid world of gypsy swing, which kind of the swing world that was so influenced, was because of I think his identity, because he, you know, he didn't. They, 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 he had, he apparently he had a lot in common with the African American communities that were in France, and they, the thing that they both shared in common was that they were many of the African Americans who ended up in jazz playing jazz music had come from a similar experience of being outsiders and not having had the opportunities to learn classical music, and therefore being quite formulaic with their way of approaching music and jazz. And requires this improvisational three thinking that is not constrained by formula. And and because Django had learnt by sight and he'd been taught by oral traditions, he never had that he never had that rigorous training which knocked the improvisational spirit out of him in the same way that many of his African Americans did. It's very common for for 
Roma communities in general the la- like I suspect he didn't read and you know kind of read and write until either much later or, or very rudimentally and I'm sure he never he, did yeah he never wrote you know wrote music or formally uh learned to read music and I think that's quite a common theme in, and maybe yeah it's part of that Roma identity in the the huge um artist artistry within Roma communities that it is all oral uh, storytelling and even recipes meals it's all oral passed down and there's that real uh, preservation of oral storytelling and uh, because of that lack of uh, education and the lack of um, like formal written education whether that be musical or with language um, many people not being able to read and write and that has created a beautiful culture in a way of, of keeping things oral and passed down I think that's really true for the Roma community in general. And obviously it's true for him as an artist. It not being surprising that he never learnt to read and write and didn't have formal, never wrote music formally and there was a more improvisational style. I think that's very true for Roma, Roma culture and Roma arts in general. Don Vapi, a Creole banjo guitarist from New Orleans and one of the musicians on our Rose Room, shared more thoughts on the links between jazz and oral traditions. The notation tradition is no more or less important than the oral tradition of music. Uh, Many things that maybe a notation person could just read, an oral tradition person could just play. And there's a certain freedom in that oral tradition, just as you learn to talk from your parents. You didn't learn to talk through uh, learning the alphabet and putting words together based on the alphabet, you learn to talk first by imitating. And that's what, that's what jazz musicians, uh, people who learn by ear, and we've, there's a tendency for society to sort of put that down, like it's not a formal education uh, through school or something or through a, a teacher. But yeah, I think that's, it's just as important. And I think that's what Django had, even in his, in his training, in his community, they learned by ear. And he imitated what he heard. And he just was really good at that. of the musicians in New Orleans in our what I call a Creole culture I mean we're people of color but it's a very diverse mix and a lot of that may not be formal education in terms of we attended a conservatory or a university but people like uh, Willie and Percy Humphrey whose father would visit the plantations teaching African-American people how to play instruments. I mean, that went on. People put together in the neighborhood to get Sidney Bechet to have lessons with somebody. So, you know, it's, they had training, but they had also had training in, in ear training, which is a very important part of jazz. Now, there are Creole songs that are 
complex in terms of syncopation, maybe not harmony-wise, some of them are just basic one, four, five songs, kind of like the blues and a lot of things. But then we have that the, the rhythmic complexity of the Caribbean. And when you put that tricio rhythm together, you know, the bop, 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 I mean, that basic rhythm has created hit songs in New Orleans for the whole 20th century. I mean, you've heard of the meters, but Hey Pockyway was, was that. Hey Pockyway, boom, 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 boom. Yet, and that's the basis for pretty much all Creole songs. You speed that up, you get a swing. You get ta-ta-da-ta-ta-da-ta-ta-da. You get the swing on the cymbal. So it's, it's kind of, I think it's logical for things to happen the way they are. The thing is, people of color were denied certain opportunities, but that doesn't mean they could achieve things without having those particular opportunities. I mean, we're human and we, we all find a way. You know, in my lifetime, I lived, even though civil rights happened in the early 60s, it didn't stop people from acting it out as if it didn't exist. Even now, you see what's going on in America with the killing of George Floyd. It's, it's still here. There have always been brick walls that we either had to climb over or go around. I mean, when I came up, my, my parents told me I had to be five times better than the white person applying for the same job to be considered. So I would imagine in Django's situation, in the gypsy camps, or in the way that people thought about them, they probably felt like underdogs as well. And back to Garth. You know, when you know you're an outsider and you're not welcomed, as neither gypsies nor uh, black people were, then um, you, I guess you just, as you say, you've got less to lose and you don't have any of that kind of bourgeois of I'll be polite, play for the mainstream and such like, you, you have more the sense of just let's do it, you know, and I think that's why jazz and blues were so radical at this time. They were just doing it. They were doing it for their own people. They weren't expecting what was to come. I mean, no one could have predicted Sam Strong or Sidney Bechet would become these world-conquering figures and such like, and and no one could have predicted that Django uh, or, you know, some of the great flamenco artists would either. This was, you know, music made, you know, amongst those communities. And, you know, I, I do think there was a real freedom to it because it was obviously so exciting. It was something new, you know. This is one of the things that's worth remembering that the dawn of the 20th century wasn't just you know, when everyone started to get electricity and modern art and modern architecture and that came aboard. But there was these huge revolutions in popular music. I mean, you look at Django for an example of going from playing around campfires and playing musette and such like to suddenly being part of jazz as it first hit. I turn back to Michael. One of the reasons, one of the things that I, I'm so interested in him as an artist is, is this sort of his voracious appetite to learn mm. and grow as an artist. And to really sort of sap the marrow of every every experience, every um, genre he came across. I mean, I love 
I love, uh, you know, the way that he was excited about his own ability as well as other people. But there was almost like that naivety of, um, of uh, 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 that you were, that you really articulate so beautifully in your writing about his kind of a his desire to sap, to learn. And, 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 and that leads to such an internationalism, doesn't it? It really, you know, like whoever it was, whoever passed him, whatever experiences he gained, fed into his, fed into his work. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, and there's, there were stories about him. I mean, he, he went to school maybe a handful of days in his whole life. And, and really music and later for a short time painting were his big, his big sort of ways of expressing himself. And, and he did, he picked up music from all it's kind of he just took it all in and i think that was part of the the roma's life at that time from his parents of traveling around in a caravan and playing for dances playing at flea markets or um, food markets in towns around europe um, and they were they were you know kind of human jukeboxes playing this music back and he and there are stories of him from his sister and so on that he could play just all these different kinds of music that he had learned classical music like sort of operette and light popular music and then when he first hears jazz all the stories are he's just like you know this it's this incredible epiphany to him to hear this sort of freedom uh that jazz offered and he was learning from all he was just in paris at this point where you know, had all these American jazzmen coming there to play, and he was playing with them and just learning from everyone. Paris in the 1930s was clearly an extraordinary city to live and play in and Django flourished. The decade ended in war and in France's occupation by the Nazis. The Roma were persecuted terribly during World War II. Up to a million five hundred thousand people died in the Poramoj, the Roma name for the Holocaust. Somehow Django managed to survive the war, continuing to play for most of it in the capital. I asked Mania about her own family experiences during that time. My, my my family got my, my grandfather his first wife his first child his mother and his father all got shot in front of him and he was kept in concentration camp that's from my father's side uh, from my mother's side because they were from Serbia they were all taken to this field where the um, in Croatian, they called him in Serbia called Ustashais, the Nazis. They were cutting their heads, like literally putting all the women's heads and just cutting them off. Uh, so we, I, I have sort of first hand, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot today. But the, the Romas, what we need to, we need to remember, if in the Second World War you had something to give, whether you were Jewish or you were Roma, if you had something to give that will entertain the Germans or um, Mussolini, so the, uh, sorry, my English is uh, or brilliant. To entertain, yes, you will have privileges, not because they love you, but because you will be there to entertain them. I asked Michael more about this. The Germans had this idea that 
every German would, every German soldier would get their chance to come to Paris for you know the rest and relaxation and to enjoy all of the uh, the wonders of Paris. And so you know having Django play music as the most popular musician was was in the Germans' uh, best interests at the time. And and I think he lived Django himself. He lived kind of is probably his most popular era, oddly enough, um, both with the Germans and then later with uh, the Allied soldiers who came to, to liberate. Um, and, and he lived uh, at times, he was living in his caravan uh, on the outskirts of the city. At other times, there are stories of him living in this a glorious apartment on the Champs-Elysees and eating out at restaurants. Uh, and have dining on you know black market steaks and so on, so he was he was kind of making money as fast as he could play his guitar during this period. It, it's a very Amazing. strange. I don't know if we can really understand from our vantage point this this like that, that, that atmosphere. Yeah, and 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 he was writing a lot of music then as well. It was a creative time for him. It was probably his most creative. Uh, time and in such a broad spectrum of different types of music. He continued to record his jazz, yet he was moving from kind of the jazz of Louis Armstrong, the, the older style of jazz, and he was influenced more by swing and playing in the style kind of more of Benny Goodman. Ad, instead of having Stefan Grappelli playing violin, he had found some clarinet players. He ultimately hired a drummer. Um, and so he, he transformed his, his regular jazz band. He also started what a group called Django's Music that was a big band. Um, and that was inspired probably mostly by Duke Ellington. And he was, he was playing kind of big band jazz. And then at the same time, he was working on a mass that was going to, uh, he had dreams of being recorded uh, and played for his fellow gypsies as they did their pilgrimage in the south of France to Les Santes Marie de la Mer. And there are some recordings of that unfinished mass that was um, played on an organ. Um, so he was doing this wide variety of different styles of music. And even within his jazz, you know, he went from swing, but he was also creating kind of, you know, music that sort of um, predated bebop in, in terms of the just kind of intense rhythms, the harmonies that he was adding to the music. Um, and then he also was, he had a series, a small series of recordings that were more like Duke Ellington's that were, um, Duke Ellington kind of crossed with say some of the uh, um, classical composers of the era and they were pretty far out recordings. So it was, a, it was a very prolific, inspired time for him. And do you think, oh God, I mean, it's very hard for us to imagine, and uh, I'm not sure if you would have, um, what you would have heard from speaking to people about it. Do you have a sense that that creative drive, that kind of extraordinary prolific output, was that, do you think that was linked to the, you know, do you have a sense that, that was linked simply because there was more money around and he was getting, playing more and he was performing more and that mm. fed the creativity? Or was there, do you think there was this sort of jeopardy element that I might wonder. have sped it all up? Yeah, I think that jeopardy element, as you put it, I think that's a great way to put it. Maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, this was, it could have been the end of the world and, the, you know, the end of the line for him. And he felt the drive to, to create these, all these different styles. 
I don't know. I don't know if we ever will know for sure, but it seems like that's, that's very likely. Another artist playing on our new Rose Rim recording is the violinist Char Limburger. Char also grew up in a Roma Manouche family in Belgium. I asked Char for any insights he might be able to share about Django during the war. Yeah, I mean, it's it must have been very, very frightening. Very, very frightening. Very heavy. And you can feel it in the recordings even. Most of the recordings from that period, they have something eerie to it, in my opinion. Not, not because I'm thinking about that epoch. I'm talking about something in the atmosphere that you feel that people are not... not um, not from the bottom of their heart joyful. They're always on their guard. And you, can f- you can feel that through the music. But then, on the other hand, he didn't have his companion Gabelli, who was one of his favorite companions still then. Um, and so he had to reinvent his, his band, his, his whole... The, the way he would play and he had to re and there was also a whole thing with all kinds of jazz titles and tunes that were prohibited that you couldn't use and you couldn't play so he had to rename he had to kind of rewrite tunes that he liked and to write mm-hmm. a, a melody over it and then call it something else so that it could be so that he could play it um, and then there is indeed the whole thing about the massacre, about gypsies, and uh, what he knew about it, I don't really know. And there's a couple of photos with Django smoking a cigarette with some SS officers. I am pretty sure that his hand was a bit trembling, to be honest. But then he was so popular, and that, and, and, and of course also the, I mean also the Nazis, they had their weak spots. And they and they they must have some some guy high up in that horrible range of people must have liked him because otherwise he would have been exterminated with all the with all the rest. Like my family was, I mean, my grandma survived and and my granddad. Uh, but God knows how they were they were trying to hide in the Ardennes, uh, in forests. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it must have been a horrible time. And actually, in the end, he fled. He tried to flee to Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, I, we, we don't know much about it all. My grandma, who, who survived the Second World War, her first son, my uncle Stor, was born then, um, in around 1940, that must have been. He, um, she, she never talked about the, the Second World War. Never. I think I heard her utter one or two phrases in the 33 years that I've known her. The word for yesterday and for tomorrow in our language is the same word. Taisa. That's yesterday and that is tomorrow. Which with, with which I want to say, gypsies live in the present. They don't really look at the past. They don't want to. There's no reason either, because they, they, they don't have this concept about you have to memorize things from the past. Why? It was only misery. Why, why, why would I want to remember that? And, and tomorrow we don't know what's that going to be, so why worry about it? We live today. That's, that's, that's the biggest uh, 
the biggest thing I could utter about gypsy mentality, I think. And in that way, the war kind of gets totally blocked out. The mystique of him and his art, his, him as an artist and his legacy, kind of wrapped up in some sort of exotic idea of the Roma musician, the Rome, the Romani jazz artist. Was he? Was there an exotic? Was there an exotification of him as an artist through it? Well, I, th I think there definitely was, um, and I think there still is today. Um, I mean, it's kind of you know. You hear all of these stories of, of people who hired him to come play at parties and so on, and they're, you know, kind of thrilled by having a gypsy musician play, the, kind of this, this French idea of the noble savage and so on, coming and, and playing this music. Um, so I think, I think, yes, there's a lot of interest, a lot of sort of the, that mystique that's, that's a kind of a halo around him. And I think with um, people playing gypsy jazz today, you know, you get this weird, strange feeling of like, well, can non-gypsies play this style of music or is it really something that you need to have this gypsy spirit to, to understand? I mentioned this issue to Alessandra. Part of his mystique as an artist is wrapped up with the fact that he was Roman. Like, it became part of this romantic idea of him and his culture and his world was synonymous with being Roma, I think. And, and I think he was quite exotified. And I think that's, my sense is that's why people loved him, because he represented something oriental and different and exotic. Um, it's kind of sick as well. It's kind of, it's lovely, but it's also... I think that happens a lot, like this fetishization of Roma culture. Like it's so appropriated, like festivals and like this boho, hippie, chic, gypsy, like the so many like beautiful Roma traditions have been turned into like fashion fads. Like, you know, the gold coins with the headdresses and they're like, that's a really rich tradition of when girls are getting married. And it's like the dowry, it's the passing of the gold from family to family. And it's become this really cheap fashion thing. And a lot of the Roma skirts, which are really traditional for Roma dancing, it's all become. And I think that was probably his kind of era and his kind of popularity was probably the start of that. This, the intrigue because of his Romaness and what other people saw as, as exotic and interesting. I mean, obviously only when it's with a very talented artist, if they, I'm sure like that to this day and then being Roma and living that lifestyle was in no way like glamorous to people. It's when it came with talent almost. Um, and that, yeah, his, his appeal for being Roma, it's, it's still a form of fetishization of, of, I don't know if that's a real word or not, but there is this like kind of morbidly, like horrible in a lot of ways, fetishization about the culture, but people only want the good bits, not the, you know, not recognizing them as an ethnic minority that are really discriminated against. What is fascinating is that the romantic legend of Django, the father of gypsy jazz, increased after he died. Gypsy jazz, or jazz manouche as it's called in France, emerged in the 1960s. 
I asked Char about the relationship between Django and Roma musicians today. Django was not, uh, I think he was not in any way um, thinking about his background. He was interested in what Americans were doing in the jazz world. And that was what he wanted to belong to. The fact that he is a, uh, I think even that gypsy jazz in a way is more of a gypsy thing now, like all the Manus and Sinti in, in France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, they really think of that style of music as theirs. So much so that when uh, um, Fapi Lafertin, an uncle of mine, who, who is a pretty uh, brightly interested person, I mean, he has a, a, a big variety of things that, that he likes other than gypsy jazz, um, thanks to Kunde Koter, he, he was once sitting with a couple of gypsies from Holland who are much less um, broadly interested. They, they just kind of narrow their interest down to strictly guitar and played by gypsies. Yeah? Mm -hmm. he, would, he would get out a, a jungle tune that the Dutch gypsy guys didn't know. Or not, or they had heard, but they never played it. And they and they went, but Fappi, you always come with these weird tunes. Play something, gypsy jazz, Roma, like uh, I mean, Romanes, uh, which means from our culture. So Fappi said, you know what, you start. <laughs> and the guy started, and he started, all of me. Why not they gonna love me? <laughs> but all of me is, is, as you know, is an American song. I mean, so. So that's how, that's how I was, the, the, when you put the third question, the first thing I thought of saying was, well, actually, funnily enough, uh, yeah, it, it became more gypsy now than it was in Django's time, because Django was um, contrary to the gypsies today. He was interested in Sidney Bechet, Colin Hawkins, Charlie Parker, and all the big jazz, Cap Calloway, uh, you know. And, and the gypsies actually today are much less interested in that. They're much more interested in their own folks, basically Birelli Lagren, and all the guys who follow more in that kind of line of very fast, uh, very flashy uh, playing, which is of course very impressive. It's just uh, less groovy and less, uh, to me, less appealing. I spoke to the rhythm guitarist, Dave Kelby, the godfather of our Rose Rim track. Dave feels the same way. I mean, Django's legacy is quite interesting because um, it seems to be, other than the, the, the lineup and the format, in very general terms, no drums, swinging with no drums, very European thing. Um, it seems to, it's, it's, uh, it's changed. It's become, you know, it's, 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 it's become something, something, I mean, Django was into, he was basically into, into American swing music. So that was his big thing. Um, and now it's, 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 it's changed into, into something that's not really, into, it's a very European style of playing. Um, doesn't, it, doesn't have, um, it doesn't have a lot of blues in it, <laughs> which, uh, which is, you know, it sounds, sounds a bit weird, but it's not that weird because almost all American music has is, is a lot closer to um, having a sort of a blues feel than European music.
That was guitarist Dario Napoli's quite bluesy solo on Our Rose Room. UK-based violinist Joe Townsend told me a little of Django's legacy in the UK. The English function band has got a, a fascination with um, with this music. So there's a lot of people get, oh, have you got a guitar? If you've got a trio, we want violin, violin, guitar and double bass. Come and play at my wedding reception. Um, it's kind of like kind of good money, easy money. You only have to be there for a few hours, play away, and then um, you go on to the next one. So there's a whole load of people make a living out of that and playing in very various different ways. And but playing the you know the standard gypsy inverted commas gypsy jazz repertoire, uh, you know minor swing, sweet Georgia Brown, all the stuff the hot club the quintet the parry played in the 1940s and around that is a whole sort of world of people who play that and then there's sort of a whole load of British enthusiasts who who play that music and then there's some people who take it very very seriously indeed I never felt that comfortable with the box of playing uh, the the um the Django stuff I love I love that I love the Django music you know but it's I'm sort of too. I'm sort of quite a restless soul musically, and I think I didn't park my bus in Stefan Grappelli's car park uh, for nearly long enough to actually play. To feel like I was playing that, and it's almost like you're just by by playing the Django stuff. You're. I mean, there are people who are innovating within that world, but it didn't. It was just. It was. It was just. I found it very hard to sort of get, get into doing that as being my main, my main thing. Why did it become the stop, the standards of the function bands in the UK? Like, is it because of Stefan Grappelli in the in the during the war? Is it what was you know fascinating? I think. I mean, I think genre is really interesting because you have people who chain you know that you have your i don't know your Mihai Csikszent Mihai say you know creativity is the people who actually change the who change yeah. the landscape. They build on the work of people before and they actually change the landscape. And like Django Reinhardt was definitely an innovator. You know, a certain number of conditions happen. You know, Musette, the gypsy influence and jazz all combining and also channeled through through Django because he dared to do it differently <laughs> in a sense. And that became the thing. I mean, there's a lot of other people around as well in, in that, you know, who were also doing their thing. But there was something... I don't know, something really interesting about how then that created something and then it becomes almost like an artifact that is reproduced and, and, and loved and brilliant. Don't get me wrong. It's that it's, it's, but it's a canon that is played, played over and over. And of course you get people who are better and better within that canon, but maybe don't. Um, and some would be interested in innovation, but the innovation would be in quite a narrow, within quite narrow confines I think, I think this is a, a general love for that music, you know, but the nut, it's really interesting, like, as a, as a, the experience of being a Django player, as a function, a function band Django player, you know, seems to be enduring at wedding receptions and, um, and also incredibly popular in sort of, I don't, I, I don't mean to put it down by doing that, but that's the, that's, it's a function of music at its most essential. You know, you're playing 
you're playing at some form of ritual, i.e. a wedding, and you're a part of that. And that's kind of, that's the function of, of music a lot of the time. And certainly um, Roman musicians have had that role in society. And, but then, but it's also, it's quite light music as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's not sort of like, um, it hasn't got the sort of, the political dimension or the, the whatever political dimension that might have existed within it doesn't it's not political it doesn't feel overtly politicized in the way that sort of genres of music like maybe uk grime has got or um jazz has or blues has taken with it it's not necessarily music of protest is it i mean it's that it, it it is it is it making is it making any socio-political comment in it? Maybe not, you know. I mean, I think, you know, when it's the Django, I don't know, I, I, I sort of entertaining, it's charming. I think Stefan Grappelli said, well, you know, why do you play music? He said, um, I play music because I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in search of beauty. I'm in quest of beauty. You know, he wants to, he wants to make beautiful things happen where they didn't happen before. down Aurore Voilic in Paris, who also kindly contributed to our Rose Room. I asked Aurore when she first heard the music of Django Reinhardt. My career, uh, I was around 22 years old, and I, I started to make uh, jam sessions in the bars in Paris and, and play improvisation because I, I discovered Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli around 17 years old, and I, I've been totally in love with, uh, with them and with uh, this kind of music. Then I, I told, I want to make that in my life. It's a music very popular because it's, um, uh, it's fun. And you know, we are playing a lot in, in the bars, in the restaurants, in the weddings, because it's a happy music and it's very accessible. Everybody mm -hmm. can under, understand it very easy. Uh, we can make, a, a, it's happy. And that's why uh, uh, I think it's uh, first it's in it's in the uh, it's in the history of our country, but it's also a music very easy to understand, and that's why I think she it keeps to to stay in the in the head. And we have also two musicians famous in France, uh, Thomas Dutron and uh, Sans Severino who have made albums uh, with uh, Jazz Manouche, Gypsy Swing, and uh, they are both uh, uh, love, loving a lot uh, Django Reinhardt, totally fan of Django Reinhardt, and then they help uh, to, to Django Reinhardt have been famous uh, to everybody, you know, not only the, 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 the people who knows Django Reinhardt, but nobody you, you, you cross in the street, if you say, do you know Thomas Dutron? Yes, and Thomas Dutron 
make me learn Django Reinhardt. Nobody can play like Django. Django is unique. It's not the, the thing, you know. But when um, gypsy guys, guitarists, plays, maybe they are more like the spirit, the gypsy spirit. They are more in the traditionality, it works, <laughs> of Django. The sound, uh, more crunchy sound, more... Uh, the style really gypsy uh, and the when they make the pump you know boom chak boom chak boom chak boom chak and this is really special style to accompany but when the 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 young uh, new uh, generation of uh, guitarists like Adrien Moignard, Sébastien Gignot, Rocky Gresset, uh, Antoine Boyer, a very young guy but he's also always also playing classical music they are they are um, making new style of, of this music. That was Aurora playing alongside Cha, Dawn, Joe and Dave. Aurora told me that she loves to kick off her sets with Rose Rim. Joe told me that after years of playing gypsy jazz at garden parties, he had the opportunity to play at the Django Reinhardt Festival at Saint-Moise-sur-Seine in France. Over the next three days, so we played in, in the daytime and went into the festival and then played um, and entertained the people on the terraces of Chez, Chez Fernando, the, the, the cafe, and then jammed at night, listened to the jamming and then, and then played as well. And it's just really, really extraordinary. And there was, it felt slightly different. It was, it, you know, it was anything but uh, function music, you know. It was just mm. like really hardcore, you know, soulful, powerful, flamboyant, um, quite dangerous music, you know, sort of hearing... and. You know, and everybody was like they were shamelessly out trying to outdo each other, show who was the best player coming in. You know, so you'd be you'd have some fantastic. You'd Birelli Legreen, for example, would be playing some amazing gypsy guitar, and then Philip Catherine would play, and it all go quiet. And Babi Reinhardt would play him on his semi-acoustic, just absolutely beautifully. Didier Lockwood would pick up the violin and just play some kind of contemporary jazz that I kind of understood what was going on, but found it would find it very hard to play to this day. <laughs> and um, then a young 12 year old lad would get up and play. And then you go, Oh my God, how can somebody play the guitar so well at the age of 12? Young Roma kid. Um, yeah. I think that was John Limburger actually, but you know, they, and, and it was still, you know, <laughs> A continual, and this would go on till two, three, four in the morning over three nights. And then on Sunday, Stefan Grappelli arrives. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, this is the, um, it was, it was so different from the experience of the last 10 years of playing Django music in the UK, which is kind of quite, yeah, it's the, the world of sort of functions and barbecues. And then when, when and, and the music, when it's played in concerts, it's the music of genteel art centres up the M4 corridor, you know, um, as opposed to this sort of much more visceral 
type of music. I kind of always been searching out. I think that that is really important. I mean, particularly for this series that I'm doing, thinking about impact of artists on our lives. Like, you know, particularly when you're thinking about avant-garde artists, the minute you start to look at their the minute you start to think about what their influence is or their their, re- their reach, it no longer is avant-garde. It's become mainstream. And yeah. uh, what that does to the, the the memory and the quality, quality the minute that happens, it just changes them. Yeah, I know. So that, yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of the, there's, there's this, there's a, it's something about, something about, something about the English, <laughs> you know, it's the enthusiast as well. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's delightful. It's, it's very British, the enthusiast, you know. The... It, it reminds me of, it, it slightly gets to the heart of the thing that I'm grappling with, the Roma side of it, which is that he, um, he was exotified and fetishized as a, yeah. as a Roma artist. Uh, and, 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 you know, he's, he, the stereotypes um, impact, you know, the living of those stereotypes impacted on his life immensely. Um, and I'm, I, my, my sense is that part of his mystique was that, was the fact that he was Roma, and that's part of why he has, a, you know, his legacy is linked to that. And mm. so I, 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 I wonder if the minute, you know, I wonder if that's what, I haven't quite got my heart, my finger on the link between that and this strange, um, the, the kind of the purism of this these, these people of people to meet the, the desire of people to sort of tame the gypsy to yeah. meet them to, to like to sort of put them settle them in houses to kind of kind of enjoy the kind of the, 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 the twinkly elements of their like of their culture in a mainstream setting is exactly what happened to his music yeah yeah and there's a can of worms in there you know I mean it's really it's, you know, the writings of George Borrow, Walter Starkey, Raggle Taggle. Oh my God. You know, the stuff that people, and so there's, there's the way, you know, Carmen, <laughs> the way we, we fetishize and romanticize Roma culture and always have done. Don told me that New Orleans jazz has had a similar legacy. You know, I've been all over the world and everywhere I've been, there's been a band there trying to play New Orleans jazz. And I don't, I guess trying is the wrong word. I'll say playing New Orleans jazz in their, in the best way that they can. And I think that's just the biggest compliment in the world. And I, I love it. In New Orleans, because early jazz made such an impact, uh, the revival period started in the late forties and fifties and that sort of became uh, not, not with everybody, but at sometimes you think there's, there's a certain repertoire that similar to what Django people want to hear, you know, uh, I can't think of the names of songs, but you know, uh, you know minor swing that's the name of it it's kind of like did you play minor swing yet you know and you got to play it basically the way that they remember it because it was a hit that kind of happens in new orleans too you know 
Are you going to play the Saints? Are you going to play the Basin Street Blues? And I mean, same kind of thing. When when things, something as great as that stands out, like what Django did, or what Louis Armstrong did. I mean, how many people have you seen in the world that sing a Louis Armstrong song and start singing in this voice of, I mean, that to me, that's kind of stupid because that's Louis. I mean, nobody, that's him. Why should you sound like him when you're you? But as I said early in this little section, you know, imitation is this grand honor, you know? It's the highest form of what? Praise? Imitation? Yeah. So I understand. I asked Dave if he'd put Django in his music hall of fame. There, there aren't many musicians, you know, there aren't many guitar players and probably not many musicians who just seem to arrive fully formed, fully formed in, 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 in the style that they are, they're, they're playing. I mean, Django just arrived. I mean, he's a, he's a gypsy musician, a gypsy guy who, like a lot of gypsy guys, played music, you know, musette or whatever it was before, before, uh, before the war. And then suddenly he got so into jazz and clearly had listened to a lot of stuff, must have. How he did it, I've no idea. But, you know, as a guitar player... I, I probably think there are no other guitar players that have ever done that in the history of guitar. They just arrived, fully formed musician, credible, and and continues to inspire. I mean, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just one album or two albums. I mean, it was the whole bloody lot. Nuts. I returned to Garth. The life of Django Reinhardt feels incredibly fictional. Every story, mm. I mean, every story that Michael t- tells, I mean, the extraordinary story of of the fire and the ravaging of his hand and, you know, the continual catalogue of disasters that seem to kind of beset him every time he tried to tour. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, 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 And it plays into the sort of mystique to me, it plays into the mystique and kind of the exotification of the of, of the gypsy in him as well. It's just it kind of adds to that, or maybe they all they all can build up to this sort of extraordinary fictional character, unreal character. Uh, the 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 the, extra, the amazing thing to me about all of that is that Django somehow the music manages to kind of even even transcend all the like you know transcend the fiction you know it, it, despite all of that the music was just brilliant. Oh yeah, well that that's why he's still remembered. Some what is it, sixty seven years after he died, he you know young musicians learn to play his stuff. His his records are constantly made available and you know played and there's books there's there's been a film i think there's always documentaries there's that big exhibition that michael was involved in paris a few years ago he uh he's just one of those musicians that somehow captures the public imagination and it's not just like most pop most popular music it's of that time you know the stuff that we liked when we were 15 most people, you know, a bit older or younger won't like it. It, it. it fitted us then. But Django, along with the great classical composers, along with uh, Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday and such like, is someone that 
you know, the music transcends time and place and nationality and ethnicity and, and search. Yeah, he just, he had a virtuosity that, that's, you know, extremely rare and, and it's a very warm, expressive virtuosity. I think that's what people are responding to. It's not just the myth. The myth only gets so many people in. You know, you can have the myth of, you know, a doomed artists and such. But again, with Robert Johnson, it has to be that the music holds people and makes them want to go back and listen again and share it, play it, whatever else. And, and Django had that. He is one of those, you know, larger than life figures. And that's not just through the lifestyle. It's because the music is so exciting. And, and the fact that he was such a character helps, you know, obviously it helps. Same as with Jimi Hendrix or Robert Johnson dying young and mysterious or Billy Holiday having such a tragic life. These things certainly, you know, because we like our kind of iconic figures and we, we like them to be, you know, somehow larger than life and, and, and having lived way more exciting lives than most of us will ever do. It was such a privilege to immerse myself in Django's music and his life for the podcast. Recording the podcast stuck indoors in the UK during this pandemic, his life feels even more extraordinary. I'm indebted to so many people for their help and contributions. To Michael Dregney and Garth Cartwright, Mania Malik and Alessandra Davison, and to Dave Gelby, Joe Townsend, Aurore Walik, Don Vapi, Char Limberger and Dario Napoli for their music. We'll play out with the Full Rose Room. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast or by going to our podcast section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening.